everybody's settling down. I love that our church is so excited to greet each other and to see each other. So this morning, um, next week, it, how many know what next week is? Fourth of July, and we are going to celebrate the Independence Day with some baptism up in here in the house. And so we, ex- we encourage you, if, you want, if you've never been baptized or you'd like to be baptized and be put on the list, um, just go right out and you can go to the little welcome booth and they would put your name on that list. It's an exciting time. And what a day to do it on the 4th of July as we celebrate our independence in so many more ways than what what the world is celebrating. But, um, and then on top of that, we want to just don't forget before we get into the message that the, there, if you want to give, there's giving boxes on your way out. And then also we have a new, you can scan to give church. That's crazy. So no, I don't have to remember numbers. I don't have to remember anything. All I have to do, all you have to do is pick up your phone and scan and you can give. Can't make it any easier than that. So, um, and then we're going to release the kids this morning. So if you've not been, the teachers are already there waiting for you. So kids, you can go. We are excited. Abby's back there and Danny and Mimi, I think it's going to be an exciting time. So this morning, I just welcome you, welcome everybody that is watching online. We wish you were here, but we are thrilled that you're watching online and joining us. Um, This has been like the last few weeks has been just a crazy, um, for me, just trying to prepare. I, I always feel a lot of pressure when Adam throws it out there, you know, like, hey, do you want to, do you want to speak on a Sunday? And I don't care how much time he gives me to prepare. I'm not ready. And, you know, this morning he's like, you ready? And I was like, if I had another month, I would not be ready. And so I think that there's a, there's a pressure that comes naturally on anyone that is going to get up here and share. And it's kind of a pressure to deliver, you know, like, like we're up here, we better have something to deliver, some good piece of meat for you guys to take home. And, and I, I feel like a pressure sometimes on, on me personally, I can't really speak for anyone else, but me personally to give a wow factor. Like, okay, God, come on, give me something new. And so you're planning what you're going to say, and you're, like, working on it, and you're like, there's nothing, like, what, you know, there's nothing, like, give me something, you know, give me a revelation, God. And it just doesn't always work like that. You know, the problem is that when people are expecting revelation, and when they're coming into church expecting to be wowed, the problem is the Bible's been around for a really long, long time. If you've been saved for any portion of your life or raised in the church, with, which I know a lot of people in here have, you've heard it all. You've heard it all. You have read every story. You've seen every felt board in Sunday school with those figurines on there. And you've prayed all the same prayers that I have. So the fact that to get up here and have the pressure that I've got to give you something that you've never had before is unrealistic. Because it's not me, it's only what the Holy Spirit can speak to you. And all we can be up here is a vessel for that, a Holy Spirit to come through my words and challenge, a Holy Spirit to come through me and to change. And so all I can do, just like all you can do in any given moment in your life when you're sharing something with someone about what God has done, all you can do is position yourself to speak what he has poured out into your heart What I know in my life to be true, I can speak out of that. Proven true over and over again. I don't speak ever from areas that I've mastered in my life. I speak from flaws. I speak from my mistakes. I speak from pushing past the fears that try to cripple me. Being transparent and vulnerable really is the only way that we can minister and be a vessel for the Holy Spirit. In 2 Corinthians 4, 7, the Bible says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of this power may be of God and not of us. We are the treasure. We are the earthen vessels that are holding the Holy Spirit as treasure. We are nothing but clay pots in this world that we live in. But I'm here this morning as a little clay pot, that earthen vessel, because that's what God chooses to use and blow my mind over and over again. So this morning, let's just bow our heads and pray and just welcome him. 
and his words. Father, we just thank you so much, Father God, for your presence that is already with us, your Holy Spirit, your anointing that has flowed through this service. I pray that it will just have an outlet to continue, Father God, through me. And Lord God, I pray you will use my voice, God, and let us continue, God, to feel your presence with us this morning. Challenge us and change us like only your Holy Spirit can. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So last week, um, it's usually our tradition in our family um, on Father's Day, right after the Father's Day service, that we go out and we drive to uh, Lake Havasu in Arizona for a few days and get away. And it's changed over the course of the years. It used to be that our little, you know, SUV would be full of all our kids and we'd go out there for Father's Day and then um, that's changed. Now our boys are married and, you know, a lot of times they can't get away at the same time we get away with whatever they're doing. And so um, it's changed a lot to where now it's kind of just, um, if Abby goes, she goes. Otherwise, it's just Pastor Carl, Sister Bonnie, and Adam and I. And there's, there's all kinds of seasons in your life, and you're all like, I know some of you are in that crazy season of child with raising your kids, and you're like, oh, it sounds so good. <laughs> and I, it's funny, because after church, across the street at the 8.30, I had one of the ladies, and she's just in that season of raising her little boys, and just a lot of pressure, and, you know, she's telling me, you know, I know what you say, I know that you've got to just treasure this moment, because it's going to pass so fast. And I'm like, yeah, but it doesn't feel like that when you're in it, does it? It feels like it's going to last forever. Well, it doesn't last forever. Soon they will all be gone and you will be invited over to their house for dinner like we were last night to Drew and Lisa's house and, and your daughter-in-law is making you dinner, which is like, it's surreal. It's just crazy. Like I'm like, I'm sitting on her couch thinking, I can't believe I'm old enough, number one, to be here. And this beautiful girl is making me this delicious meal and this is their home and this is their house. I mean, oh God, it just changes. Everything changes so fast. And it can be good, it can be bad. There's pressure in all seasons, you know, there is. But I, I would consider this season of my life to be a really, really good season. And last week we were able to get away and, and one thing when we get to have a soon, no matter what time of year it is, if we're in there in November and it's nice and cold outside, like 65, you know, which is my, cold, my kind of cold, and then, um, or if it's 110 like it was this past uh, Sunday, when we get there, you can guarantee that the next morning, when I wake up, Pastor Carl is outside in the front yard, and we have this little olive tree on the very front of the property, and Pastor Carl will go out there despite whatever temperature it is, and he's trimming and pruning this little olive tree. Now, I've been studying in the last few weeks, um, just in my own study time, the significance of olive trees. And so being there and just seeing that little tree and just it's such a little light, light, wispy tree, it brought just a little different perspective to me this time because of what I've been studying. And I'd like to share with you a few things and significant things about olive trees. Olive trees all over the Bible lands, they're, they're everywhere and, and I hope to go one day to see for myself. But throughout the word of God, olive trees were used as illustrations and examples and, and places of rest. And just under 200 mentions of olives, olive oil, and olive trees are in the Bible. So today, before I kind of dive into my message, I want us to just take a little spiritual detour and take some lessons from these olive trees. In Hebrew, an olive tree is pronounced shemen, and it is, means the tree of oil or to shine and be brilliant. The root word of shemen is actually the sun. So there's a special place in the New Testament that had a little grove of olive trees, a place where Jesus liked to go and pray. And he went there and chose to go there right before he was arrested and crucified. In the book of Mark 14, 32, the Bible says they, which meaning Jesus and a few of the disciples, went to a place called Gethsemane. Now, being, going to the Bible lands is on my bucket list. And I know there are several in here that are in that bucket list with me because I, I've already told Adam I want to go with a group of my friends and people in our church that we can just be wowed together. And so one day I hope to see all these places with my own eyes and be able to stand where Jesus stood. But I, I kind of looked up pictures of what gar the Garden of Gethsemane would look like if we were to go today and see it and trying to just see the atmosphere that Jesus chose to be in for the hardest moment in his life up until that point. 
Some say that this was a private grove of olive trees that someone allowed Jesus access in to spend those moments with God. And if God created everything, and if there's a purpose to everything that he created, what did Jesus choose to be the setting of his hardest moment on earth? A garden called Gethsemane, surrounded by olive trees. And I couldn't help wondering what the significance would be of these olive trees being there at this moment in his life. And in order to understand the significance, I have to share with you some things I've learned about these olive trees. So the first thing about an olive tree is in order for an olive tree to be fruitful, it has to have both the harsh, hot winds of the east, but it also has to have the refreshing, cool winds of the west. There's a scripture in the Bible in Psalms 48, 7 that says, you destroyed them like ships of Tarshish, shattered by the east wind. So the east wind was this fierce wind. Scriptures describe it as shattering ships and scattering people. You can probably look back throughout your, your life and like pinpoint moments or seasons in your life where you were feeling ravaged by the fierce east winds that come. But the east wind in the Bible was also what God used to part the Red Sea when the Israelites were running for their lives, and he used the same fierce east wind to drive the waters back again and, and rescue them from their enemies completely. The hard east winds were the ones that were rocking the boat and the disciples thought they were gonna drown. And it was those same hard east winds that would bring the storm and blow the storm out when Jesus said, peace be still. So don't knock all the east winds that come into your life because gifts can come out of those hard east winds. There's treasures and rescues that can come out of those harsh east winds. We have to learn how to balance in our lives those hard winds and the refreshing times of the, of the west winds in our life. It's a balance of both, learning to receive and be grateful for both. It's a lesson we can learn from an olive tree. The second thing is when an olive tree produces the fruit, if you were to pick it and just go outside and pick one of those olives off of the tree and put it in your mouth, you would most likely spit it out immediately and feel a little sick. And the olive naturally from the tree is hard and bitter. It first has to be cracked open. It has to be salted and soaked, and then salted and soaked again, sometimes for weeks and up to months. There is a process to getting rid of the hardness and the bitterness of that raw olive. And I think this is a beautiful analogy of what happens to us when we give our hearts to God. In Ezekiel 36, 26, the Bible says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I will put within you, I will remove that heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. There's something special that happens when we allow God to crack us open and to soak us in his spirit, that hardness and bitterness and all kinds of junk that we come to Christ with begins to soften inside of us. In Mark 4, 18 through 19, the scripture says, for from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things come from within and they defile a person. So for from within. So if that's the case, as Christ followers, we should not be only just willing for God to, to save us and to wash us and to take care of the outside, but we should be desperate for God to crack us open and to soak out that hardness and that bitterness that we carry. And in order to get what is the most valuable from an olive, it has to be pressed, but not to the point of being destroyed. What comes from that deep pressing of an olive is oil. And suddenly that oil, that olive that was just ordinary, little hard fruit, after deep pressing, this precious oil emerges. Now they would take these cracked and soaked olives and they would lay them out in the Bible days on a piece of what we would say concrete today, but at that time it was probably a flat stone. And they would have the stone at an incline. Okay, so they would lay out layers and layers of olives that have been soaked and cracked open, and then they would put another flat stone 
on top to cover all of them. And the weight of that stone, they would leave it there at an incline and underneath both stones, they would place a clay bowl or a clay pot. And the pressure from those heavy stones that through the course of days and possibly weeks would drip out the first few drops of oil. The first few drops were the most precious. The oil would be collected in that clay bowl underneath. And there would take, in those days, it took 2,000 olives to make one quart of oil. That virgin olive oil that can be used for so many things. So the first press that they would take, they would extract that bowl and it would be full of the extra virgin olive oil, the finest flavor and the only oil in the Bible that was used for light. This light was never allowed to go out in the temple of God. And so this oil was used to light the temple and it was also used for an anointing oil. We can see Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane being pressed that first pressing. It was the first pressing, the most purest form of the oil dripping out in his time of darkness that would eventually bring light to us all. The second pressing in the Bible days of the oils, after they had gathered the, oil, the first drops, they had put another bowl under it and leave it there to be pressed even more. And that second pressing would produce medicine, oil that they would use for medicinal purposes. And we can say that Jesus, when he went to... Um, when he was arrested and he was beaten and whipped, that he was beaten and whipped and that was his second pressing because by his stripes, we are healed. So he is the ultimate medicine for our lives. And the third press, after they'd collect that bowl, they'd put another bowl underneath to get the last remnants of what was left inside these olives. And that last press would be soap. And we can say the cross was Jesus' last press as his blood cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So the finest flavor and the only oil that was used for light was the first few drops. This process of picking the fruit and cracking it open and salting it and soaking it and finally pressing it. The pressing produces oil, oil that can anoint, oil that can be lit. But in order to get the anointing, it had to be pressed. And, you ha and, and those oils literally have to sit under that pressure for a very long time, those, those olives. And it's like that in our lives. The longer you sit under the pressure, the precious oil begins to form. When you think of the process of making this oil, today we have machines and factories that will do this. But in the Bible, they only had their hands. And 2,000 olives makes one quart of oil, and so much of their food source needed oil, all their light needed oil, that's a lot of oil. So knowing all of the steps it took for olives to be pressed into oil, I think it gives us a better insight as to how valuable it really was for people and how devastating it would be to run out of it and not have the means to get any more. There's this little story in 1 Kings that many of us are familiar with of a little lady, she was a widow, that was on her last drops of this precious oil. And this man of God named Elijah would show up and challenge her faith down to the last drop. In the book of 1 Kings 17, verse 8, the Bible says, then the word of the Lord came to Elijah and he said, go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. And so he went to Zarephath. Now, pausing the story real quick, this city named Zarephath, it meant refining furnace. So it doesn't really sound like a place that I would choose to go vacation in or go. But just from that city name, you know that Elijah is going in with an expectation. Okay, it's not going to be fun. I'm gonna go depend on this little widow to feed me. It's going to involve salting and soaking and some serious pressing. There's gonna be pressure here. So he goes on and when he, the Bible says when he came to the town gate, he didn't even have to go very far. There she was, a widow gathering her sticks and he called to her and he said, would you bring me a little jar in, in water in a jar so that I may have a drink? And as she was going to get it, he called after her, oh, and bring me, please, a piece of bread. And she said, as surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering these few sticks 
to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, do not be afraid. Go home and do as you have said, but first make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me and then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, the jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. And she went away and she did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah, for the woman and for her family. This little story shows us that you are responsible for your own oil. This little lady had just enough oil left to make a small cake for her son and herself, and then her oil supply would be empty, and she fully expected to die alongside her son. Yet in spite of being a mother, terrified at the prospect of watching her child starve to death, she believed the word of the Lord that Elijah spoke to her, and she did a truly hard and selfless thing. She did this act of faith by making her last little bit of oil into a cake for this prophet of God, because you are responsible for your own oil. You are responsible how you get it, and you are responsible for by what you do with it. So the first thing is how we get it. How do we get our oil? We are responsible for how we get it. In order to have oil, you have to be in a position where you can be cracked open, where you can be salted and soaked and pressed. And it's usually not a very fun place to be in. I'm sure Elijah did not look forward to going to this place called the refining furnace and have to depend on a widow to feed him. He was probably just as excited about what she was going to have to do for him as he was in doing what he was going to have to do for her. There was, they were both kind of right there in the same position. And being in a position of being pressed is not a great season of life. It's not a great season of marriage. It's not a great season of working and your careers or going to school. You're being pressed on all sides. You're getting a little bruised. And oftentimes, it goes on for what feels way too long. How much longer can we endure under this pressure? Can you imagine how hard that decision was for this little lady to give him all that she had, to give him her child's last meal? I probably would have stood there shocked that he had even added that to the request of water, because no problem, you want water? That's not gonna cost me anything. But then he adds, wait, could you bring me a piece of bread? And now he's challenging her. Now it's gonna cost her something. I probably would have just stood there and like, like it, let it just sink in my mind what he had just asked. And thinking, what do I do? What do I do? He said, God. He said, his God. His God is alive. Oh my God, what do I do? What do I do? That's probably what would have been going on in my mind. I don't know what to do. And these seasons and moments of pressing, pressing has to cost you something. That's what makes what you give so much more valuable. In Psalms 34.1, the Bible says, I will praise the Lord no matter what happens. I will praise the Lord no matter what happens. When you have that kind of a mindset, these golden drops of pure oil are being pressed out of you. It's a pure anointing is flowing from your life. It's for yourself. It's for others. Don't rush the process of the pressing. It produces more oil to burn your life with. It's giving you what you need to move on. Put yourself in an environment where the oil is encouraged to flow. Figure out where you are and what you're doing when it happens. When you're feeling full of that Holy Spirit, recognize the places that you need to return to because how you get it is important. You are responsible for your own oil. There's a famous parable in Matthew 25, chapter one, that Jesus taught. And it says, at the time, the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. And the foolish ones took their lamps, but did not take any oil with them. But the wise ones, however, took oils in jars along with their lamps. And the bridegroom was a long time in coming and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. But at midnight, the cry rang out. Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. 
So all the virgins woke up and they trimmed their lamps, but the foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both of us and you, so go and buy your own. And while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived, the virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet and the door was shut. We are responsible for our own oil. People use Sunday church to fill them up and expect that oil to last all week till they come parking and coming back in here again. I know because I've been that person. Sometimes we come in here so depleted and so empty. We have used up our last drop and we wait for the worship team to pick up that first beat to stir us up because we don't have anything left. We wait for the message to be spoken, to make us think and to challenge us for the coming week. We wait and we hope that we are pressed just enough to squeeze out a few drops that we hope will hold us over till next Sunday. Would you be shocked to know that it's not the church's job to fill you up? Church is not a gas station with a full service sign on it where all of our volunteers and all of our pastors are going to come out at your honk and we're going to wash your windows and we're going to pump you full of gas and then we're going to check all your oil levels before we send you on your way. Your spirit needs to be filled at all times. You were meant to burn daily. To burn daily, we have to have a supply of oil to sustain the burning. The Old Testament, the fires were never allowed to go out in the temple. That means the oil supply had to be watched and filled at all times. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, do you not know that your bodies are not your own? They are a temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the temple of God. The Bible says we're to enter into his gates with thanksgiving. That means before we ever come to this altar and wait for that first chord to strike, that we are coming in with the thanksgiving gift to God. That means before the band ever starts playing, we're gonna enter his gate with thanksgiving and his courts with praise, bringing what we have, bringing our own oil, being a contributor of oil versus just a consumer of it. The enemy wants to make you run out of your oil so there's no fire, and then sneaks in that midnight hour. If you aren't reading your own Bible, you're not getting your own oil. If you aren't worshiping when you have an opportunity to worship at home, you are not filling up your own oil. If you aren't declaring God's word over your marriage and God's protection over your children, then your oil supply and their oil supply is running very low. And at some point, Christians have to know where to go and what to do to fill up their own oil. The Bible says, be alert and be ready. Ask God to fill you up with his presence. That's something the enemy does not want you to do. He wants you to be so busy and so consumed with all the issues that you have around you that you don't have time to fill up on the things of God. He wants you to be busy and distracted so he can come sneaking in at that midnight hour and you realize you've run out. It's got to cost you something to be filled. This little widow of Zarephath not only shows us that we're responsible for how we get the oil, but she shows us what to do with it because you're responsible what you do with it. Once you find out what fills you up, what keeps you filled, you have to be wise in what you do with it. When we were first pastoring um, and we started out in youth ministry, I was very young and, and naive to a lot of things. I had never counseled people or had to do that. And then we find ourselves with, you know, 50 young people. And so the girls, I would go out with them and they would want to talk to me or, you know, they're in a bad relationship. Whatever the case may be, it was just different things. And I remember time after time sitting in my car with a young girl in the passenger side and I would give her my advice. I would try so hard, like give her the godly advice as I could, like get out of this, don't go into another one, just be with the Lord, get to know the Lord, let the Lord love you. Trying to say all these things and you know those, that happens when the next day, everything that you said, it kind of went in one ear and out the other and they go off and do the exact thing that you had told them, don't do, it's not worth it. 
And I realized when that happened on repeat, how much oil I was depleting on people that did not want it. They didn't want to change. And I couldn't change them by how much oil I was pouring into their lives. They had to want to be a vessel to contain that oil. Jesus was drawn to people who always brought their own oil. He was drawn to people who offered up what they had. He fed the 5,000, which we know were more like 20,000 with, with women and children. And 20,000 people were sitting there just waiting for someone else to do something. Waiting for someone else to use what they had. Waiting for Jesus to do something. Waiting for the disciples to use what they had. But this little boy comes up and he hands his little lunch. And this little boy brought something that could be used. And everyone ate from what this little boy brought out of his own supply. David was a little shepherd boy and he heard about this giant Goliath that was taunting the armies of God. And this little shepherd boy stops by a creek and he picks up a few small stones and puts them in his pocket. And he comes before the king and the king thinks what David is bringing is insignificant. And he even offers him what he has out of his own supply, the armor of the king. And David refuses to borrow Saul's armor. He refuses to use someone else's oil because he says, I don't need that because I'm bringing my own oil and I believe that God is going to use what I have. What happens every time when we use that oil that we have, he makes it last longer and he makes it go farther than we can ask or imagine. That little boy that gave his little lunch, the Lord broke it. The Lord blessed it. And he put it in the hands of the disciples to distribute it. And the Bible says when they were all full, not when they were satisfied, not when they'd had a little snack to hold them over, but when they were all full, they went around and gathered 12 baskets full of leftovers. And do you know that if you read that story from the very beginning, on the first chapter, first verse of that chapter, it's talking about how Jesus had just sent out all of the disciples to pour out their oil among their own people, to give their anointing, to heal the sick, and to teach about Jesus. And they had just returned to Jesus depleted. They had just turned to Jesus and they were exhausted. They hadn't eaten the entire time they'd been gone. And Jesus, with compassion, he says, come away with me. And he takes them away with him. But little do they know that right around the bend waiting for them is 20,000 people. Jesus knows what we need to refill us. They wanted a nap and they wanted a meal. And instead they walk up and they're like, what the heck? So after Jesus teaches them, they beg Jesus, send them away so they can get food. Come on, we know they weren't thinking about them. Send them away so they could eat and find a place to rest. And Jesus said, no, you feed them. Because when you offer all that you have, God refills to overflowing. And there was 12 baskets full of food. And let me tell you who those 12 baskets were for. They weren't for the 20,000 people. Every single one of those disciples that had come depleted and hungry and tired walked away with a basket full of leftovers. That's what God does when we give him what we have. He blesses it and he multiplies it. We are responsible for what we do with what we have, who we release it to, who we pour it out on. That's what this little widow would understand. She had nothing to give, nothing to offer except a little bit of oil to make one tiny cake, and that's exactly what she did. Those few drops of her oil mixed with a little faith would change her whole future. In 1 Kings 17, verse 12, the Bible says, Surely as the Lord your God lives, this is what she's replying to Elijah. This little Gentile woman says, As surely as the Lord your God lives, I don't have any bread. I only have a handful of flour, and a little olive oil, and I'm gathering a few sticks to make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. So she looks at him and she affirms that your God, yes, I believe your God lives. And then she tells him her plans. 
You ever heard that quote, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans? That's what she's doing. She isn't exactly saying no, but she isn't offering her little bit either. 1 Kings 17, 13, Elijah says, don't be afraid. Go home and do what you said. Do your plans. But first, make me a small loaf from what you have. Bring it to me and then go home. Then you can make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord says. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day of the Lord sends rain. So she tells him her plans and he tells her, all right, you do that. You do you. But first, make one for me. And then you see what God will do with your plans. There's nothing wrong with having your own plans, having your own career goals, having your own business goals. God inspires us for all of that stuff. We need to have those things. But first, before you do any of those plans, give what you have to God. And then comes the blessing and the multiplication process. The story goes on and she went away and she did just as Elijah told her. And there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. The scripture doesn't even say just her son. How much of her family was she feeding with that little supply? But first, give me what you have and then your oil will never run dry. But first, give me the first tenth of your fruit. Give me your tithe, and then the vats of heaven will never stop overflowing. But first you give, but first you do, but first you worship, but first you love, but first is going to cost you something. So we go back to the Garden of Gethsemane. And here Jesus is chosen to be in this garden right before he's going to be arrested and crucified. He's facing the hardest decision and test he has ever faced. And you could say he's facing the harshest east winds right about now. He's being pressed on all sides. He's in this garden. And he chose to have his hardest moments in a place called Gethsemane. Jesus was always using those surroundings as lessons. He was always using his creation as lessons. And I think even up to these last few days, his hardest days, that nothing he did was just coincidence. There was a purpose to every step Jesus took, every place he walked, every word that he spoke, and we can miss such beautiful details in his story that he has given us. Gethsemane in Hebrew, it literally means the olive press. So here he was in his olive press. When Jesus shed those great drops of blood like sweat, this is a picture of the immense pressure that was being put upon him, the extreme anguish that he was feeling. He literally was being crushed by the weight of the world, the weight of your sin, the weight of my sin, the weight of your sickness, the weight of my sickness. It was literally crushing him on top of him, squeezing out the precious golden virgin olive oil that would come out and be an anointing for all of us. And what did he say when he felt all of that? His words were, take this cup from me. He's at a desperate place. Right here in this scripture, he's as human as we are right now. In this moment, he was separated from his father by the weight of all of our sin that he would soon have to bear under the pain of the cross. And he's telling God, you can fix this. You can rewrite the end of this story. I don't want to be this to be a part of my story. Please, Abba God, take this cup from me. Have you ever been pressed like that in your life? Honestly, anything that Jesus spoke on this earth, this right here is something that we all can relate to. We can all resonate with this, that he was feeling the pressure, that he was feeling inadequate to handle this pressure. He did this picture in the Garden of Gethsemane for you and me to recognize he was already there. I don't think I have what it takes, God, to deal with this. I've thought that thought. I can't handle another loss. I can't handle this sickness. I can't handle this pressure anymore. I've been under these piles of stone too long. This past week, 
You know how you get your little um, Facebook and Instagram pop-ups, memories. And on Friday of this last week, June 25th, two years ago, my Facebook memory popped up. And it's crazy how you can see a picture and you go back to that moment and you remember the details. And I don't think about details a lot of, of what we went through and the sickness and all that anymore. It's, it's one of those things that you just happily fuzz out, you know, and just keep on going. But um, this particular day, this Friday, I saw that picture and I was there again, clear as day. I was hearing my diagnosis for the first time. And I immediately remembered the moments at the very beginning, the initial moments of panic, of the unknown, what will this chemotherapy do to me? What will I look like after these surgeries? Will I live through this? Or is this a battle that's long-term? It's amazing how pictures can just spark that memory. The memory of being home alone. We had just received the news and we had met with our doctor and, and I was home alone. Somehow everybody had left the house and it hit me. The fiercest east wind I've ever felt hit me. I turned on the shower. I shut the bathroom door in case anyone came home. And I just sat on the floor and I begged God to take it away. You are a healer. You've healed me before. I will not have to go through this. I will not have to have the bags of chemo. I will not have to do this. I don't want this. Even telling God about my husband can't even handle a medical TV show. How, how is he going to handle this? I found myself in my bathroom in my little Gethsemane. But Jesus had already been there. He was holding my cancer in his Gethsemane. He was being pressed and weighted down by my disease. He was weeping in that garden under that olive tree because he didn't want to carry it either but he did it for me. He was sweating blood for me. He was begging God to take that cup from him just like I was begging God to take the cup from me. But then Jesus once again takes this moment and he teaches us once again what to do with our oil and what to say. And he said, not my will. Oh, but what you will, oh God. Through this process of Jesus' sacrifice, the purest form of sacrifice was happening. Through the pressing and the bruising, he would become that anointing oil for us, and he would be a light in our darkest midnights, the light for us in our darkest moments, the holy anointing oil that would fill us up when we are in our own Gethsemane. You could say that Jesus went through all the stages of pressing, that he became the light, that he became the healing medicine, and that he became the cleansing soap for us. Friday, my two-year memory was the start of a crazy season of pressing in my life. But yesterday, my memory on Instagram and Facebook was from one year ago. We were in Havasu in the same place we were just in this last week, and I had woke up on that day, and an old friend that I hadn't heard from in years had sent me a song on Instagram called The Story I'll Tell. And I encourage you, if you've never heard it, Google it. But I laid in bed listening to these lyrics that morning. The hour is dark and it's hard to see what you are doing here in the ruins and where this will lead. Oh, but I know that down through the years, I'll look on this moment and see your hand on it and know you are here. And I will testify of the battles you've won, how you were my portion when there wasn't enough. And I will testify of the seas that we've crossed, the waters you parted, the waves that I've walked. And I will sing, oh God, my God did not fail. Oh, this is the story that I will tell. And the very last line of that song that says, all that is left is the highest praises. And I remember laying in bed so clearly that morning, listening to those lyrics, all that's left, it's been hell, but all that's left is the highest praises. For the first time I was just laying in bed and tears were flowing. I didn't even realize that I would feel that way one year in, but it, it had been a hard year. It had been a year of pressing and it was behind me and all that was left was the highest praises. That season of pressing, that season in my Gethsemane was over. 
My husband and I had been cracked open and salted and soaked and pressed in ways that we've never been pressed before. But the things that that precious anointing oil did for us, did through us, did in us. We went to dinner this week with some old friends of ours and they wanted to know about the journey. And they were asking, how'd you do it? How'd you balance church and, and, and the cancer? How did you go through all the treatment and do all the stuff you did without slowing down? And, and we're like, yeah, well, there were some Sundays I couldn't go. But when I could go, I was here. When I could speak, I would speak because there was too much goodness in what we were experiencing not to share through the journey. And that's what God does when you offer up. I'm tired, I'm weak, I'm sick, but God, you spoke to me this week and I have to share what you've spoken. When you do that, you have enough sustenance that just pours back over you and carries you on even further than you thought you could go. Jesus has already been there in that same garden, all alone, separated from his father. And then he sacrificed himself for me so that I would never have to know what it's like to be separated from him. He was responsible for his own oil, how he got it and what he did with it. And he filled himself up through his years on this earth just enough so that when he faced the hardest moments in his life, he had reservoirs. He had reservoirs to pour out and he chose to pour it out for you. He chose to pour it out for me. 2 Corinthians 4, 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. As he poured out his life, we received it into our little earthen clay pots. We were the little pots underneath the oil press that were gathering, getting to hold that oil, that treasure. Paul compares the value of God's precious light-giving oil to the value of what God chose to use to contain that oil. You and me, these earthen vessels. It should never cease to amaze us that God chooses to put a treasure inside of our simple clay pots. We are all just clay pots holding an unspeakably great treasure. Why did he choose us to carry this precious oil of anointing? The Bible says that the excellence of his power may be of God and not of us, so that it would be evident to anyone watching from the outside anyone with eyes to see that the work that is being done is from the inside out. It is not by us, but it is by the power of God within us. Looking back this weekend to all my memories, I'm so thankful for the treasure. I'm so thankful for that treasure that he allowed me to carry in this broken earthly pot. I will forever point people back to the treasure. I will forever point people to what is within me, not by my own, but by what he has deposited in me, what he's allowed me to carry. The power that comes from his anointing oil within this weak clay pot. That same scripture goes on to say that we are hard pressed on every side, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but we are not abandoned. And we are struck down, but we are not destroyed. When I am weak, that's when he's the strongest. When I'm weak and I give all that I have, that's when he pours in that never-ending supply of oil. When we give, when we take responsibility for our own oil and we give it and place it where God is asking us to place it. In Zechariah 14.4, I wanna just end with this thought. This is a, is a prophetic word of what it's going to look like when Jesus returns for his bride. And this, in this um, passage of scripture, it says, on that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from the east to the west, forming a great valley. At that time when Jesus returns, there will be no light, no darkness, Living waters will flow from his throne through the valley and the Lord will be king over all the earth. 
And the Bible says that even in the night, there will be no need for light because Jesus is going to be so bright. He won't need a sun. He won't need a moon. He is going to be the light. And the interesting thing about this scripture, it says on the day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. If you look at a map and if you look um, at the Garden of Gethsemane, the Garden of Gethsemane is tucked in to the Mount of Olives. So you have the Mount of Olives and then you have the garden below it. And this scripture is telling us that Jesus is returning to stand in victory above the place that pressed him. He's gonna stand in victory above the place that was the hardest moment in his life. He's going to choose to come back and stand right above it. And that's what he's given us the ability to do, to stand in victory above all the pressing, above all the times in our lives where we just couldn't escape. He's gonna come back and he's going to break everything by just standing in victory above it all. On the day that Jesus returns, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives and his living water, his living fire, his living oil will be running through the crevices of this cracked world. Don't resist the times of pressing church. We need the oil that comes from those seasons in our life. It sustains us for the long haul. In 2 Chronicles 16, 9, the Bible says, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. That means he's constantly watching. He's calm, well, I can't do it. No, 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 God's watching. And all you have to do is be responsible with your own oil. And he's gonna come swooping in and strongly support you. Strongly support those whose heart is completely his. He's already there in your need. He is already there breaking the addiction. He is already there in your marital stress and the marital problems that you have. He is already there. And all we have to do is position our clay pot in the right position to be able to get the drippings of his presence to just get the drippings that he pressed out in that garden of Gethsemane, just to get that a drippings of anointing, that's all we need. Just position yourself. It is your choice how you get your oil, and it is your choice what you do with it. Place your ravaged, cracked, earthen vessel in position to receive all that he wants to pour out into your life. That's when we will be refueled. That's when we will be revived and renewed and it'll help us, we'll just keep going. Oh, I can keep on going now. I can keep on going. I'm responsible for my own oil. I'm responsible for filling myself up. I'm responsible for how I get it. I'm responsible for what I do with it. Do not run, church, from your Gethsemane. Don't try to escape those olive trees. Don't try to escape the olive press of what God wants to do. That's where our little, small, insignificant clay pots get filled. Get filled to overflowing with the greatest of treasures. Let's bow our heads this morning.